Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today I'm delighted to welcome two guests to my podcast, Dr. Regina Harburn, who's with the Department of Physical Therapy at the Kane University in Pittsburgh, and Dr. Sarah Berger, who's with the College of Staten Island and the City University of New York. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We're going to talk about a study they've published in the special issue of uh, PTJ focused on uh, infant and child innovations in rehabilitation. The title of their article is Embodied Cognition in Practice, Exploring Effects of a Motor-Based Problem-Solving Intervention. I'll do a brief summary and then we can talk about the research. The objective of this uh, trial was to examine the effect of two different interventions on the development of motor skill of sitting as well as problem solving involving 20 infants with developmental delay and or cerebral palsy who range from 8 months to 34 months old. One intervention emphasized motor-based problem solving while the other focused on advancing motor skill through assistance for attaining optimal movement patterns. The investigators focused on two main outcome measures, the gross motor function measure, the sitting subsection, as well as the early problem solving for infants test. With respect to their findings, infants in both groups made significant motor gains from baseline with no difference between groups Children in the motor-based problem-solving group showed significant gains in early problem-solving as compared to the children in the optimal movement pattern group. So I really enjoyed reading your article as someone who does not work in the area of pediatrics. So I'm going to start with a fairly basic question. Your study focused on using embodied cognition in practice. Could you... Uh, explain a little bit for our listeners what you mean by that concept and how it was used in your study. Sure. Uh, this is Sarah. I'll answer that question. The idea of embodied cognition takes the point of view that knowledge or cognition is not some separate thing located out there in the world outside of the body that we then have to somehow get into our mind. Our brains are situated in our bodies. So, Instead, the embodied cognition point of view thinks of, of understanding and knowledge about the world as coming out of, out of an interaction that's happening between uh, a body, a real body, in the real world. And it's this interaction that is generating knowledge and, and, and understanding about the world. So um, can I give you a, an example Sure. A concrete example. Okay. So babies do this uh, funny thing where after they are engaging in a behavior over and over again, then it's really hard for them to stop and switch and do something else, even when the old action, the old behavior is is no longer appropriate or a new behavior would be more efficient, um, it's, it's hard for them to inhibit something that they have done repeatedly. So in my lab, we actually study this 
phenomenon in 13-month-old infants. And the way that we study this is we ask them to make their way across the room to, to get to a caregiver who's waiting for them at the other end of a path. And we vary the kind of path that they walk down. And we vary it according to how difficult it is, how hard it is for their the body to move across the room. So we might ask them to come down a set of stairs or or figure out how to fit their body through a tunnel and their mom is waiting for them at the other end. Or, or we just give them an easy path so there's no obstacle in the way and they just have to uh, crawl or walk over to get to um, to the caregiver. And we ask the babies to do this several times there's no trick involved. The mom is right there in full view, and she's saying, you know, come see this toy. Come give me a kiss. You know, come get your Cheerios. And then we move the mom to the end of a different path. And the question is, will the babies take this new path to the mom, or will they kind of get stuck? Will they have trouble inhibiting and take this old path that they've taken before? So the really interesting thing is that we can't just say, well, babies can inhibit or they can't inhibit. It's not like a cognitive skill that they just have or they don't have. It turns out that the same baby in the same session, just minutes apart, will show that they know where the caregiver is or they might show that they have that they can't inhibit and they kind of get stuck on the old path. And it's all about the difficulty of the task. So when it's really hard for them to keep balance, let's say coming down the stairs, then they have trouble inhibiting taking a new path to get to the mom and they end up having to make a little detour around. But the same baby just a few minutes later in exactly the same task, but there's no obstacle in the way, acts as though it's no trouble at all to inhibit taking the new path. So I think this is a good example of how human cognition or, or, or reasoning about the world is situated in a real physical body in a real particular context. And it's not just about do you have or not have some kind of, of knowledge or cognitive ability. Let's talk about your two interventions, and then I'll ask you to relate them to this concept of embodied cognition. The first was a motor-based problem-solving approach, and the second was an optimal movement pattern approach. What's the difference between those two intervention approaches, and how do they relate to what you just described as embodied cognition? So uh, this is Reggie. I'll explain that, and maybe just a little bit of background. And the reason I was interested in looking at these two approaches is because in a previous study, I had noticed um, that as children were allowed to figure out ways to sit when they were just learning how to sit, um, and as they both practiced it but also practiced it in a variety of ways and in situations, they seemed to play differently with, with toys differently. And at that point, I wasn't interested necessarily in cognition, but I noticed it, the parents noticed it, the parents would say things like, wow, I never thought I would see him play with a toy like that. And so it got me thinking a little bit more about how the connection between movement and cognition. And so the uh, problem-solving group, the intervention in that case, had to do with letting the child always initiate the movement, even if the movement did not seem efficient, 
also connected to what Sarah was saying, when you're allowing a baby to choose two things, a, a path that's easy versus a path that's hard, if they choose the hard path, maybe it's an error or the longer way to go around, but we let them make that choice. And so we let them make some errors and learn from it. In sitting, you know, the error might be leaning too far to one side so that you might lose your balance. And, of course, we protected them from hurting themselves, but we allowed them to make that mistake. And so the opposite intervention, the optimal movement pattern intervention, would be that we would provide them with more support. We wanted them to sit with what might be considered an optimal pattern of a base of support. So many times therapists don't want to see a child sit in a W-sit pattern, which is sort of like having your feet out to the side while your bottom is in the middle of your legs, and they will correct that. They'll correct the legs of the child or, you know, support them somewhat so they don't tip over. And so that optimal pattern group would have support. We would help the children to um, start a movement to change position, or we would direct them in the right direction, or even give them some body weight support, you know, sort of lift them up a little bit to try to make it easier for them to transition in and out of sitting, or guide them in the right direction. And in the problem-solving group, we did not do that. Okay, that's very helpful. Mm -hmm. Now, I I was struck in reading your article that uh, I've been really interested in dose and how we choose optimal doses of the interventions that we tried to study. In your study, you did the interventions two times a week for 12 weeks. What was your reasoning behind that particular dosage? So that was more of a practical choice for us. Um, These were young infants and, you know, dependent on their families fitting us into their schedule for additional times. They were all infants who already were in some early intervention And those um, sessions were taking place usually about once a week. So they were already getting some therapy, and we could not ask them to stop doing that. That was unethical for us to pull them out of any intervention, and the parents would not want to do that anyway because they get very attached to their early interventionists. There had been some previous studies looking at um, intervention for young children that had uh, more intensive therapy, and that was considered to be three times a week for, for young children like that. So we just added on two times. So they would not get any more than three times a week, okay. partly for ease of, you know, the caregivers and partly because there was some evidence that three times was a lot more than children get. You know, that okay, would be well, that makes higher. sense. Uh, that, that leads me to another thing that struck me in, in reading the article. You, you mentioned in your introduction that there's no standard of care in the field of early intervention rehabilitation. Could you talk a little bit about why you think that is the case? Well, the reason early intervention exists, as it does in every state, is because it's a public law that children receive intervention when they're identified with some type of disorder or delay. But that law does not give the specifics of what the intervention should be. So it's very different depending on the individual and on what the child needs and what their diagnosis is. And the systematic reviews that have looked at early intervention, for example, for infants with cerebral palsy, which many of the children had in our group, not all, but many, Mm -hmm. they have such different intervention for these children that they're really, the the systematic review concluded that they're just, everything is different. There's just no one standard. So not how much, not what kind, not many things are not 
specified. They're sort of left up to the therapist. The only thing that the law tells you to do is that they should get it, and they should get it in the home, and it should be integrated with the family, but it doesn't really tell you what to do. What about the evidence? Is there just not enough scientific evidence in this area of practice? There is not enough scientific evidence. There is some evidence for some diagnoses, like for Down syndrome there is some evidence, but we did not have any children with Down syndrome. We excluded them from our group because they were different enough from children with developmental delays and children who had cerebral sure. palsy that we excluded them. Sure. So, yeah, so the systematic reviews that have been done don't have enough of the same thing for you to say this is the standard of care. Okay, that's helpful. It sure strikes me as a fertile area for for more research in our field. Oh, yes, absolutely. Now, getting back to your study, I was really struck by the findings as a non-pediatric therapist. Both groups showed clinically as well as statistically significant improvement in motor skill. Was this what you had expected, or did this finding surprise you? It actually did not surprise me because all physical therapists work on motor skills. We all try to advance motor skills, and if we're not doing that, we you know, we try something else. We don't keep doing something if we think it's not making a change in the child. And both interventions had to do with practicing motor skills and, and you know, increasing the amount of time that the child spent in practicing some new skills. So I, I wasn't actually that surprised that everybody seemed to get better in the motor skills, but I was really surprised that the problem-solving skills were so different in the groups. Yes, and let's go on to that finding because that did strike me as well. When you looked at uh, problem-solving ability, the the group that um, had the intervention, um, which was motor-based problem-solving, they had greater improvement in uh, the cognitive area than the optimal movement pattern. And what do you see as the implications of that finding for practice in, in our field? For one thing, I was I was surprised at how big the difference was. And when I looked at it, I was just showing the graph around to other people and even my biomechanical friends who were not pediatric necessarily. I said, what does this mean? And they said, well, it looks like if you practice problem solving, you get better at solving problems. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's, leave it to our, our leave it to an engineer-minded kind of a person yeah. to say that. Yeah, and so I was I was surprised at that, and I feel like our interventionists perhaps worry a little bit too much about the quality of of movement when perhaps children need to figure out what works for them, and yeah. and that sort of feeds their mind and cycles into this. Oh, I figured it out, and then I can figure out something else. And and learning motor skills is a little bit, I, I have realized as I have kind of examined my own practice that it's a little, sometimes we teach children things that are unintended. You know, I've, I've noticed children who wait for someone to help them because that's what has happened in the past. And they look at you like with the question in their face, like, aren't you going to help me now? <laughs> um, because I've always received that help or reach towards you or something like that when really maybe they could try it. But we may extinguish that behavior sometimes, especially early on in development when we are sort of over-helping children. 
Well, it will be interesting as you continue your work to see if you can replicate the finding in larger samples and maybe children with different uh, disorders. Yes, definitely. And, and, you know, the test that we did, the early problem-solving indicator, was a nice test for us to use because it's a play-based assessment. But, you know, we sort of say, well, that's cognition, which is maybe a little bit overstating it. Right. It's probably not pure cognition. Right. My last question, I want to bring it back to this concept of embodied uh, cognition. What do your findings say with respect to that concept, if anything? I I struggle with that concept. Sarah, you want to? Do you want me to do that? Okay. Take a stab at it. Sure. I think the simplest way to think about it might be that when you solve a problem with your body, then you're learning problem-solving skills in general that can apply to lots of different contexts. And so learning these new motor skills in the context of the intervention was a kind of problem to be solved. And so the specific solution for that problem got better. The baby's motor skills got better. But because they were able to work on these specific motor skills a little more independently or maybe a little more creatively figuring it out for themselves, they weren't just practicing the specific motor skill. They were practicing the solving of the problem to get better at that skill. Does that suggest that the impact might be more generalized than one would otherwise suspect? Yeah, I think so. I think that we're measuring a particular thing. We're we're looking specifically at how their motor skills are changing. But when you measure something more general, like their problem-solving ability, then I think we can then pick up that more general skills are changing along with the specifics. It may be that nobody has looked. You know, the the methods that we use or the outcomes that we're interested in are going to shape what we take away from these studies. Methodology is going to shape the interpretation. So if you use the tools to, to ask a more general question, we might see evidence that more generalizable kinds of skills are also improving. I also think that's how babies learn early on is through movement, maybe a little bit more than, you know, later on in development. And so with some of these, allowing them to solve some of these early motor problems, they're learning to learn. So, like, what do I have to do to discover something? And they get reinforced for that, and they begin to have this perception of of their own ability that they can then, you know, pursue their curiosity in some other way and and continue to learn on their own rather than being shown things or being sort of, you know, always uh, guided to do a movement, discovery, learning, more or less. It's also motivating to suddenly recognize that you have these new abilities. And when you have the ability, then it's almost like a a cycle. It it prompts you and motivates you to explore this new ability, and then you get better and you're discovering new things. So having the skill itself is a motivator in and of itself. And I think sometimes in the... um optimal movement pattern way of of treating, we interrupt children. You know, they may be starting to solve a problem, but we we interrupt them because we want them to do it the perfect way, not the imperfect way. And then that interruption breaks their attention, and then they really can't, then they they lose the whole 
benefit of solving the problem. Um, they take their attention away from it. They allow somebody else to help them, and then then you've sort of lost that opportunity. So I think it's sometimes to their detriment that we stick ourselves in there to make their movement look perfect when when they do need to make some of those decisions and mistakes on their own. Well, that certainly makes sense uh, when you describe it that way. Well, I want to thank both of you both for taking the time today to share your research with our listeners. I will say I really enjoyed talking with you both and enjoyed reading your article and appreciate that you published it in PTJ. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. It's so nice to talk to you.